Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's conversation is a very special episode, which is an interview with Dana Hamilton from Predium, a private equity firm that focuses its investments in single-family homes and finance businesses, and Chaz Mueller from Progress Residential, the largest privately owned single-family rental platform, which is a portfolio company of Predium. Chaz and Dana are long-term colleagues, each having been on the founding team at Archstone in the apartment business and now working alongside each other in the single-family rental business. We talk both about SFR and about Archstone and how in each business Chaz and Dana were at the forefront in businesses consolidating and institutionalizing a formerly non-institutional sector. Chaz, Dana, and I toggle back and forth between the Archstone and the Progress SFR experiences throughout the conversation and talk a lot about the changes enabling SFR to have become a new and permanent institutional asset class. It's a really fun conversation. This is not the first time we've spoken about single-family rental. I invite you to go back to the vault to listen in on my conversation with Fred Tawami back in 2018. Fred was then the CEO of Invitation Homes, the Blackstone roll-up in this space. And like Dana and Chaz, Fred had previously been a leader at Equity Residential, which alongside Chaz and Dana at Archstone was inventing the at-scale model for the apartment ownership and management business. Both then and now, for Fred as well as Chaz and Dana, each business was driven by new available information technologies. And you can also go back to my conversation in 2018 with Colin Wheel, the co-founder of Mind, which is in the single-family rental management business, which is another hugely non-consolidated mom-and-pop business. He was also a co-founder of Waypoint Homes, one of the early SFR companies that rolled up into the Invitation Homes portfolio via its acquisition by Starwood. One of the things that I love about these conversations on Leading Voices and my work at Terra Search Partners is the opportunity to tie these strands together. It's the people strands, who work together, where, when, and how, and the company strands about which companies like EQR and Archstone that were innovation hubs at inflection points in the industry and how these strands weave together to form the ongoing dynamics of our industry. Longtime listeners to Leading Voices will hear me digging in and pulling out these themes with my guests, which is just what we do in our search work at Terra Search Partners. It's the same discipline in how we work with our clients to understand their business and requirements and how we dig deep to understand our candidates. Thank you, Terra Search Partners, for sponsoring Leading Voices and giving us all the opportunity for these conversations. If you're enjoying Leading Voices, please share an episode with a friend. Please rate us on the iTunes store. And if you have any comments or questions, as always, you can email me at my day job at matt at Enjoy the episode. Damold Hamilton and Chaz Mueller, thank you so much for being on Leading Voices in Real Estate. This will be our second or maybe even third conversation on single family rental, but the first one in a long while. We interviewed Fred Tuami, who was then head of Invitation Homes like two and a half years ago. And the business has changed. COVID got in the way. And I've known both of you for a long time. So thank you for being here. And and maybe the place to start is kind of brief explanations from each of you of who you are and where you sit and how you're related. And maybe start with you, Dana. And you're at Predium, if I say that correctly, which is the investor and owner 
of Progress Residential. So talk a little bit about that in your chair and then also how Predium got into this business and does it just play in the single family space of general sorts? Sure. So I'm head of real estate at Predium. Predium was founded in 2012 by a gentleman by the name of Don Mullen, who was global head of mortgage and credit at Goldman Sachs. Predium is a specialized alternative investment manager. We have three areas of focus, single family rentals, residential credit, and corporate credit. Predium was one of the first large investors in single family rentals or SFR as we call it, and it remains our largest investment vertical. So one of the distinguishing characteristics of Predium, and I think it's one of the reasons that Chaz and I joined the firm, is we like to take on new and difficult challenges as well, we like to build highly scalable long-term businesses. So at Predium, we're not short-term investors. Instead, we've taken the view that SFR is a massive opportunity and we've been investing not only in homes, but also systems, structures, talent, and adjacent residential businesses for the better part of a decade. While the vast majority of our homes have been acquired one by one, we've also acquired both portfolios and companies. Those one by one acquisitions, as well as the management of all our homes, are overseen by Chaz Miller, who's CEO of Progress Residential. And um, with that, I'll let Chaz introduce what he does. And one question before Chaz comes in when Don Mullen thought about this thing, as someone who came from Goldman Sachs, did he see this as a long term business or a trade? He was more on the long-term side of it. And the reason is that he saw a dislocation in the space. So he was less about seeing inexpensive real estate, which is what parties like Blackstone did. Instead, what he saw was that there had been significant underbuilding during the crisis, that there was this wave of millennials who at some point were going to form households, and that they didn't have great credit and that it was gonna be more difficult for them to borrow in the future. And therefore he basically saw a generation coming and said, how are we gonna house them? They're not gonna be able to buy, they're going to need to rent. So that was the intersection of demand and supply and really his insight here. And I think he hoped that if he built this properly, it would become a long-term, incredibly scalable business. Okay, let's come back to that in a minute. Chaz, so you run Progress Residential. Talk about that overview. Yeah, sure. I, I do run Progress Residential, as you mentioned. And, um, and we're really a portfolio company owned by Predium. We manage the portfolio of homes and execute the acquisitions for our investors. We also have a third-party management business where we manage homes for others, for third parties. And including uh, Front Yard, we own and operate over 60,000 homes. So we're the largest private SFR company today and the second largest overall behind Invitation Homes, larger than American Homes for Rent. And growing rapidly as we continue to raise capital and deploy capital in, in a very active acquisition program, which I know we'll talk about in, in a little bit. So, Dana, you kind of eased into this, but talk about single family rental, talk about the drivers, talk about what makes this a maybe a permanent versus an impermanent asset class. Sure. So I like to say that SFR is a massive market hidden in plain sight. There are some 15 to 16 million single family rentals. It's more or less the same size as the 10 plus multifamily market. The reason people don't see it is that until now, it's largely been owned by 
what we call mom and pops. In fact, together, the large, you know, more institutional owners and managers like Predium probably still only own 3% or less of that existing inventory. So what's different from multifamily is that SFR has not seen until now the impact of professional management or the influx of institutional capital um, that we saw starting in the early 1990s for multifamily. Um, this influx of institutional capital can be seen not just in private equity, but also in the public equity and debt markets. So when I think about this opportunity, I think about it as market plus, plus, plus. And I think it's important to understand that that opportunity is not only for investors, it's also for residents. So that first plus is this wave of, well, starting with market. Market is that existing imbalance between demand and supply for housing overall. Um, the first plus is that wave of millennial demand that's beginning to move from apartments to single family housing. The second plus is the multitude of benefits that accrue to residents and investors alike from the combination of companies that have scale and professional management that they deliver. And the third is the evolution of technology and its likely impact on how all of us live and interact with our homes. My feeling is that institutional SFR is in the very best position to provide residents with a living experience that they simply can't provide for themselves at a cost that they can actually afford. And living experience from a resident standpoint, better because you have professional management, not mom and pops. And also, I'm curious, as this rolls up into institutional ownership, does that mean more transparency and therefore higher rents? at the end of the day, or higher value for that? It's always about value, right? The only way that you get higher rents is if the market supports it and if you're delivering a package of service and product mm -hmm. that makes sense in particular when 3% of the market is institutional, right? So we compete with the 97% that's, that's mom and pop. So we have to offer something for people that's materially better for them to pay more. But what scale does is it allows us to provide better, I think, at an equal price. So when we see you know, prices moving up right now or rents moving up, which we do, that's going on broadly. That's not just limited to institutions. That's a function of that demand and supply mismatch. But what Chaz and his team does is ensures that the experience that people get living with us, and that begins from ease of finding us, to ease of living with us, to ease of, of moving on to the next chapter. Hmm. How does COVID either accelerate or change that? And then maybe that's the first question. The COVID from a industry standpoint has been a net positive. There were a lot of different trends in place, such as the search for more space, the movement to lower cost, more attractive, better quality of life markets. All of that was occurring pre-COVID. What happened with COVID is that there was some acceleration, but really what it did is it shined a light on those trends that we were seeing already before COVID. So while people think there might be some pullback, there might be due to that acceleration, but fundamentally people were moving to the Sun Belt. Fundamentally, millennials were forming households. They needed to be near schools. They needed more space. 
And what we've all experienced in COVID, I think, just pushes that even a little bit further. And I don't think that's going away. So. Uh-huh. And this may be a question for Chaz or for both of you, but are there places where this works either generally or for your model better in places that it works less well? And that means ge- geographically, not suburb versus urban. We're concentrated in this kind of the Sunbelt markets, and those tend to be the markets that, are, that it works well. You're seeing in migration of, you know, people, jobs, household formation, all the drivers that you like to see in a residential business are stronger in those markets. And, you know, in addition, you have the, the fundamentals of the millennials, which is such a large cohort out there today. Those They're moving into that age and they're approaching 30 on average. And they're re- moving into that age group where they're starting families and they're moving out of apartments into single family homes. So you've got kind of several different factors at work that are very positive overall. And, and, and really in, the, in all the markets we're in, things are, are pretty good right now. And we, we expect that to continue for all those reasons. Mm-hmm. And, and what about built to rent? How does that fit into your model or this overall business? And is that changing things? Because it's now so institutionalized that the builders are building for this product. You know, I think given an overall shortage of housing, in particular quality and affordable housing and the places people want to live, you know, we've constantly been expanding our reach. We've expanded into new geographies, including both submarkets and markets, and we've expanded into new product types. So from build to rent to older homes in need of significant renovations. And of course, all of this is always informed by both demand and our sophisticated data analytics. We've moved both up market and down market in terms of price point, often marrying investor preferences for workforce housing or for higher end product with market opportunities. And I fully expect that we'll continue to thoughtfully expand our residential footprint, including adjacent products and services, as well as you know, new customer segments and geographies. It was interesting. It, when it's build to rent, you can build a different product to exactly what you want. Are there things exactly what you want that you might not normally get in a house that you just buy? You know, there are things that we want, but I guess before Chaz picks up on that, I'll say that, you know, there's still a fundamental trade-off between location and being able to build, you know, a large number of homes. So I think there's a lot of experimentation going on in build to rent. And I think that's really a good thing to understand how people want to live going forward and whether it's different from the way that people have lived before. There are really two drivers of build to rent. One driver of build to rent is this overall shortage. The other driver of build to rent is again, investor demand. What build to rent does is it de-risks two things that people, well, that investors still feel about single family rentals. One is that they're just still not sure how you can accumulate so many homes. And they're also not sure how you operate without scale. And so what Build to Rent does is it takes some of the risks that people are accustomed to already taking on in multifamily, and it just puts it into single family rentals, which people understand is a good thing, but it's kind of a, a place of comfort. So 
I like it for the big drivers. I think investors like it because it feels familiar. It's sort of a bridge in between. So, Chaz, let, let's talk about kind of the, the drivers of this business and what enables single family to rent that wasn't there maybe 15 years ago. And I know that's technology scale, platform, business model. Talk about that. Yeah, it's all those things. Technology scale, uh, data is a, is a really important part of that as well. And, and it's, it's just has allowed this business to operate efficiently in a way that the margins have actually improved. If you look back just the last five or six years, the margins in our business have improved like 1,800 basis points. We're now roughly in line with and actually even ahead of many leading multifamily companies. And many people in the apartment business never thought that was possible. I always felt there was a way to do it. I didn't completely understand what that meant, but had always was always had an interest in it. And, and it really just comes down to the, the larger companies like Progress and some of the others who are able to really invest in operations and technology in people, in data analytics that allow us to manage this business, even though you have, you know, assets scattered all over the place, each asset is an individual home. All those capabilities allow us to manage those very efficiently and very effectively. Uh-huh. And we're going to get to this in a bit because you're both apartment people. So you're bringing the perspective of, of apartment business and the sense of what you did at Archstone, which was a scale model, one of the first in the apartment business over to this. But this was unfathomable 15 years ago as scattered site. Hey, there's a property here, a property there. I know how to manage a 100-unit property pretty well. How do you get the margins to be equal to or better than in one building? That doesn't make sense. Yeah, there, you know, there are lots of ways. And again, it's high level. It's technology, data, process. We have a very sophisticated revenue management system, which, which allows us to move our rents up, you know, similar to apartments. So that's one I'd say where we're, you know, similar to maybe, maybe a little better, but, you know, call that a wash. But some of the operating efficiencies, a big one is we do all of our homes, all of our leasing is done, our touring is self-showing. They give us their information, the information we need. We give them a code. They go in, tour it on their own at their, you know, their own convenience, whatever they want, which is frankly more desirable for the resident. Did you have that pre-COVID? Were you just ready when COVID happened? Or was that something you had to develop during COVID? That was actually something that was done pre-COVID. Pre-COVID, we would meet when people were ready to move in. We'd meet them at the home, kind of show them in the home, tell them about progress, who to call if they have problems, that sort of thing. We had been experimenting with doing that remotely uh, prior to COVID in a couple of markets. Once COVID hit, kind of forced us to basically do it everywhere. So now... Over well over 90% of our residents go all the way through the process and move in without ever meeting a progress employee in person. It's all done automatically, remotely, either by phone call, texting, email, or, or just through all the, through the systems we have, which make it very easy for them to go through the process and move in without having to meet anyone in person. Talk about kids. So are kids harder in the homes so that when there is a turn, you have to like redo the walls or something? (laughs) And then how do people feel a sense of loyalty or pride of non-ownership, but almost that living in this home and taking really good care of it, especially if you haven't met them? One of the things that's interesting, if you think about it with the scattered site, single family rentals, 
a resident has a choice. They can make it clear that they're a renter or they can act like an owner. And I think over time, we're likely to see the package of, of products and services that they buy reflect that. But they can be out there power washing their, their driveway, they can mow their lawn, or they can hire someone else to do it, or they can hire us to do those things. And I think that's really interesting, the level of choice. But my feeling is that most people choose to be a part of the community. And I laugh because when people try and distinguish owning a home from renting a home, reality is most people don't own a home. They rent the home from the bank. So you can rent the home from the bank or you can rent the home from Progress. And from the outside, it really looks the same. Totally true. And that's probably a little bit why I asked the question about rent to own. What is the difference between owning and renting if it's a home in the same neighborhood? Okay, I own, I rent, I have a mortgage, I have a 90% mortgage or I have a 50% mortgage. There's probably some behavior differences between that, but there need not be less of a behavioral issue. And really what gets in the way is if someone wants to live in a single family home, why do they rent instead of buy? I think over time, we're likely to see preferences. My daughter's a millennial. She will likely choose to rent everything in her life. But most people are renting because they can't own. Why can't they own? They can't own because of accumulated wealth, meaning they don't have the down payment. They can't own because of their credit score. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes they can't own because they've done all of the right things to have that good income. They've gotten an education, they've gotten a job, but they had to take on so much debt in order to get that education that they don't qualify from a debt to income standpoint. And so most of our renters have an income that's probably equivalent to those people who own. But one of those other factors gets in the way that points them towards renting. Chaz, talk about the, the other side of your platform, which is really the acquisitions machine that you have. You, you're buying 70 of these things a day? Yeah, or even more now. And, and really, it's, it's interesting, the 45,000 homes uh, that, that Progress owns outside of the front yard acquisition we talked about earlier, vast majority of those were acquired one at a time off of the MLS. And we've done that by investing heavily in the technology and the data analytics systems to support those acquisitions. We have an incredibly effective system for acquiring homes one at a time. And then essentially the way it works is we get an automatic feed every 15 minutes for every home in our buy box across our markets. So when a home goes on the market within 15 minutes, we get a feed if it meets our criteria. We have an algorithm that quickly scores it and, and helps does the underwriting. And we're constantly tweaking the inputs to that based on the performance and the data out of our, our overall portfolio of you know 45,000 homes and growing. So we have a really good data set and that allows us to really tweak the model. We have an acquisition team that has a couple of inputs. They put in the rents and the, uh, the renovation budget and they try to generally get an offer out within a couple of hours of the home going on the market. So we're, very, we're able to analyze it very quickly, make an offer. Our offers are all cash, very flexible closing. Basically, whenever the, the, the seller wants to move out, we're happy with that. We, have a, we do have a 10-day due diligence period. Once we get it under contract, our lo we have local teams in every one of our markets. They go into the home, do an inspection, put the inputs into an iPad. That quickly... Uh, 
generates a scope for the renovation that we compare with our initial underwriting. If it's if the numbers are close, we go non-refundable and um, you know move forward with with the closing. That scope created from that inspection once we close becomes the renovation scope. So when once we we close, now we're renovating the home based on what we saw during that inspection. We typically complete the renovations in 20 to 25 days. And that enables us to buy, we'll buy today, we'll buy close to 2,000 homes this month. And we expect that to increase in in the 3,000 range uh, this summer. So we're buying over 80 a day now, and that'll continue to go up. Let's unpack that a little bit. The, The home buying is one of the most emotional things that people do. And you're the non-emotional buyer. And Completely so, not emotional. Correct? Yeah. So so contrast that a little bit. And what's that as a competitive advantage? If you want to buy something, you maybe you kind of get it. Yeah, we do. We offer a price based on our, our underwriting and, and the returns we, we need to earn. We know we're able to pay for the home and we make our offer and it's a all cash, very flexible offer. So it's very competitive. And if someone, an emotional buyer wants to pay more than that, then we're very financially oriented and non-emotional about everything we do on that, that's in that acquisition process. We typically close over 80% of the homes we put under contract. And our teams are really good. It's, it's pretty amazing what they can do just by, they know the neighborhoods because oftentimes we own homes all around the same area. Sometimes we find things like the HVAC system is about to go out or not working properly, and, and we're going to have to replace that. We, Of course, we could not have seen that without doing the inspection. So that one, we'd have to ask for a price reduction, and we either get the price reduction or we move on. And normally, the seller realizes that they're going to give that price reduction to the next buyer anyway, so we, we typically get it. Um, but if we don't, we, you know, we move on, and at that point, the home doesn't meet our numbers. We, we don't close on it. The other place that there must be massive efficiency as compared to the individual buyer has to be in the renovation work because you already have your crew, your crew's ready to go. They know what they want to do. So that's also non-emotional, but the number of markups that you get to walk away from on that must be, maybe your cost is half what it would cost a regular homeowner to get that work done. We have obviously strong relationships with vendors because we're you know a volume customer. It all happens very quickly. The day we close on the home, you know, within a day or two, we're there starting work. We've already ordered most of the uh, materials we need ahead of time because we again got those when we did we knew what we were going to do when we did the initial inspections. Mm-hmm. And maybe this may be a question for Dana. So we're talking about one-off deals, which is how you've grown. Except you just did a large acquisition. Is that also a fruitful market for as this business grows and then maybe consolidates? If I can, let me say something about the one by one for a moment. I think what people forget when they hear one by one is that they assume that that's a one by one process the way a normal person would go buy an individual house and you just multiply that by 70. But what there are very, very sophisticated workflows that go from taking the leads that are available, scoring those leads, putting them in front of people, having a ton of data that automates the underwriting, and then a workflow process that hands it off to making the offer to the exchange, to scheduling the inspection, that same information that's used for the inspection is leads to the renovation and through closing, through financing, this is all a seamless process. 
And so that approach that we take to having this very, very consistent underwriting and systems that tell us how things are going to perform, we're able to make that translate to larger portfolios and even to companies, which is what we did in the case of Front Yard. And so what we lose out on with portfolios is the ability to pick the exact home and to renovate it to our specifications. On the other side, because we also have such strong insights from our data as to what that home is likely to be like and how we could rent it and the impact of the systems that Chaz and team have built on the operations, that we're able to look at those portfolios and see how it is that we can improve them over time. And so Front Yard was a perfect example of a set of homes, 14,500 in a world where homes are scarce, where we had a very, very clear view as to how our operations could improve the performance of those assets for both the residents and the investors. And we're less than six months into owning that portfolio, and already we've seen a material improvement in operations. And it was because of those insights that we had, as well as the systems that we have that are scalable and can incorporate even a portfolio that large into, into mm-hmm. what we do. Let's go back to the one-off buys for a second, because we were talking and thinking about the difference between the resident experience from you, renting from you versus renting from a mom and pop. But in your acquisition of these homes, you're typically competing against home buyers, not against mom and pops who are going to rent them out. And I, and I'm thinking of pressure points in the industry, right? Who's going to be pissed off at what you guys do? And I think the home buyers losing out in an overheated market probably don't feel so good about your ability to be so efficient. So let's remember that there are two sides of this, right? There's a buyer and a seller. So the fact is that as a buyer, we still represent a pretty small part of the market, even collectively. Overwhelmingly, most homes are purchased by would-be owner-occupiers. I'd say that one of the places where we fit and where we have an advantage is that we often buy homes that need a significant amount of renovation. So if you are a would-be owner-occupier and you're buying, let's say, your first family home and you're already stretching to buy that home, do you also have the money and the certainty to do those renovations? But on the other side, Matt, are all of the sellers who are also homeowners. And we've created enormous liquidity in this market for people who wanna sell their homes. So yes, we make it marginally more challenging for people who wanna buy homes, but if you're a seller and you're looking to move on to your next home or get out of this for whatever reason, or move for a new job offer, it's great to have this type of liquidity added to the marketplace. Totally true. You just said you tend to buy properties that need more renovation. I'm assuming these are you you buy the ones that need the light renovation, particularly as you're making all these quick decisions at 40 houses or 70 houses a day. The homes that we buy the most of, I should say, are between call it 16 and 18 years old. So 16 and 18 years old, I like to say that's when the light starts blinking in your refrigerator and you think, oh, that's not a problem. I'll just get a new light bulb. And then the ice maker starts making this horrible grinding noise. And you look at your kitchen and you say, this whole kitchen was put in 17 years ago. I can either replace it part by part or replace the whole thing. 
Most owner occupiers go in and they replace it part by part. We go in and we replace all of those appliances. We put in hard surface flooring. So we don't deal with things that have structural issues. We don't deal with floor plans that would really need to be readjusted, but we do put in twenty dollars to $30,000 of capital into a $250,000 home. So that's significant. Mm-hmm. So it's tough for a, a home buyer because they're already having to stretch for a down payment oftentimes. So they have to make a down payment, get a loan, buy a home, and then have to spend another $25,000 to renovate the home. I mean, that's difficult. They're generally cosmetic renovations. So Chaz, one of the things that you said in our prep call about this is that your secret sauce is your culture. So talk about how culture fits in with all the things that we've talked about for your company. Having a, a strong organization is really, really important. And we, you know, we started with a lot of people from multifamily, but when you get into further into it, there are lots of differences. And we definitely have a culture of promoting from within. We've, we've started bringing people in from other industries, whether it's hospitality, retail, restaurants, logistics, all different types of industries outside of real estate that we think are, are really helpful as we understand our business and the technology and the data and the logistics. And, and we really have a culture, uh, I'd say it's a very highly energized team. It's extremely excited about what we say inventing an industry because mm-hmm. we're really not reinventing this industry the way it, it is today, where you have large scale operators who have large portfolios and, and the ability to invest in operations has really only been around you know, three, four, five years. We have a constant focus on continuous improvement and getting better at what we do. And we want to completely look at how can we do this in a completely different way versus kind of marginal improvements around the edges. So I think that's a real part of our culture and really what drives the people of progress and, and, and drives us to do what we do. We'll contrast that to what you found at Archstone when it became a roll-up of a more mature industry at that point in time of the apartment industry. But one of the things you said was interesting is you'll bring people in from different industries and different perspectives. Could you give an example of someone from a totally different industry that then brings a mindset that might challenge you in this asset class, which actually is different than apartments? Yeah, the most recent example, we just hired a, a chief operating officer. He came to us from McDonald's. He's seen great ex- at scale. He knows how to run a large, dispersed organization. He's already starting to bring it. He's only been with us a little over, maybe not even two months yet. But um, we're very excited about the, the different perspective that he's going to bring, how we're going to be able to use many of the talents he has to supplement what we already have in the progress and just help continue to take us to the next level. Let's talk about McDonald's for a sec, because I'm curious. I'm going to push back at you here, which is uh, McDonald's is known for homogeneity. They made everything homogeneous. And you've also talked about the unemotional and data-based approach. So is that the ultimate goal of what this is? Or in real estate, everyone talks about a curated experience. So this is the opposite of the curated experience well, by design. Well, it's, yeah, it's a different curated experience, but we want it to be consistent. We want it to be scalable. <laughs> this is operating you know, today, 60,000, someday hundreds of thousands of homes right. across the country in a consistent manner and continuing to take advantage of scale to do that effectively so that we're delivering I mean, our customer experience. We need to figure out what that will be, and, and it's not going to be that 
is not going to be the same as McDonald's. Right. But what McDonald's brings is a real commitment to customer research. So they, they know how to figure out what their customer wants and then very effectively deliver that to the customer. And that's what, you know, ultimately we want to do a better job of that. And the other thing you slipped in there, and you've said scalable, both you and Dana said this throughout the conversation, but all of a sudden I'm going, okay, cool, because they're probably going to be 10 times as big as they are. They're building for 10 times bigger, which is an interesting model because real estate, we don't. We build for, we're going to keep increasing every year, but not, we're going to just go nuts. I think that was one of the amazing insights about Predium. And when you think about bringing a different perspective, the early people from Predium mostly came from really the, the securities business. They, they were looking at, at these homes, not as homes, not as real estate, but as a collection of attributes on which they had wanted data and information in order to select and to, to maximize value. And multifamily, who in many ways was in the best position to have capitalized on this business, they just couldn't see how it was that you were going to be able to operate these disparate assets at scale. And, and frankly, had you wanted to get into this business 20 years ago, you couldn't. So what changed? What changed were systems, affordable, scalable workflow systems, data science, processing speed to allow you to, to make decisions based on those attributes. And what also changed was ubiquitous internet, which matters for remote entry, it matters for search engine optimization and SEM, it matters for our fleets, which service these homes, all of which are very technologically enabled and it needs to be incredibly mobile. So, so that difference of perspective, I think, was in the DNA of this business from the start. Yeah. Okay, we have to totally change subjects. So we're going to come back to the point that you're making because having known each of you 10, 15 years ago, you really were trying to do these things in this level with this level of innovation at Archstone. So let's pivot to Archstone. But before Archstone, let's pivot. And we're only going to have time for like two or three or four vignettes here. So the first vignette I want to play out is Santa Fe Security Capital as it was going to become Archstone. And I'm a music fan, so I think of music metaphors all the time. And I think of like bebop in the 1950s in New York City, where it was foment, it was happening. And I think of what it must have been like it in Santa Fe when the business was coming together for all the different security capital companies. So, and you were both pups in Santa Fe. Talk about that. So yeah, we Dan and I both started at Security Capital Group in a management development program for MBAs. We both gotten our MBAs. I actually had zero real estate experience. I'd been in the car business for, for nine years before I went back to school because I wanted to change industries. It was a great situation to learn the business, work with amazing people. They basically brought in MBAs every year, exposing the different parts of the business. Dan and I at one point were sitting in uh, two cubes next to each other, learning about the apartment business. It was a time when you had the, the idea of taking, capitalizing on what was then the securitization of real estate. So there was this big picture trend. This is 92, 93. What year was it? 94? 94 when we both started. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Sam Zell was starting to securitize the industry and Bill Sanders was had, had the vision as well. And we were young cops out of business school who didn't really know much of anything. At least I didn't. Dana had some background, 
the part of her experience, she can tell you about her experience as, as a school teacher before that part of it as well. But the key was there was so much growth and so much activity, so, so much going on that there was, it just allowed us to immerse ourselves in these different businesses. And, and for someone like me who didn't have experience in the industry, I was able to learn in a very short period of time. Okay. And Dana, you're in the cube next to this guy. So talk about that. I actually don't think about us in Santa Fe. I think about us ringing the bell for Arch from the New York Stock Exchange, and we look so flipping young. So it was, you know, extraordinary things for young people to get to do. I was in really the residential part of the business from the get-go. And as Chaz noted before, I had been a high school teacher, but I studied real estate and finance and business school. So I, I got a little bit of real estate experience before that I, before I came in. And what attracted me to the company was really Bill Sanders' view of taking an industry that was you know, ripe for consolidation and change. I think the moment that we're in with single-family rentals, where you see it, whether it's in its build-to-rent form or its SFR form or, you know, all of those things in between. Everything between that single-family house and that multifamily apartment, I'd say, is in a state of flux at the moment because it has not yet been professionalized or institutionalized at scale. And we're in the early moments of that. So then let's go to the next phase. So the next phase is Archstone in Denver as you're really consolidating that business. You guys are still pretty young, but you're like in lead position or pole position to start leading the company. The company had the ambitions that you've talked about through this. One of the nice things coming, not from business, but coming from being a teacher, coming from education, was I tried to keep that outside point of view. And I remember at the time reading every business publication that I could find about every industry other than real estate to try and find analogies. How do other industries solve the problem that we're dealing with now? And that's something that I've still tried to maintain is, is thinking about analogies. So right now we are information obsessed when I think about where we were at Archstone, we weren't information obsessed. I think we were about experience obsessed. We were looking at other industries where they could make quick decisions and facilitate a smooth and easy relationship with customers. Mm -hmm. So that mindset of looking at analogies, looking at best examples, best experiences for customers, regardless of industry, is something that we did when we were at Archstone, and it's something we're still doing at Predium in Progress, trying to figure out how do we make the absolute best experience for our residents, because none of us forget that that's where this business really begins and ends. It's with that customer. They, they support us. They pay the rent. They pay our salaries. They're the most important part of what we do. So, Chaz, let's keep the conversation going and move along to the next era here, and you had the blessing and curse, not curse and blessing, I think the blessing and curse, which was to sell Artstone at the absolute top of the market to a venture, I think, led by Tishman Spire. And then yep. after selling it at the very, very top of the market, then you got to manage it. But then after the turn became a problematic asset. So just talk about that. And then talk about the, I don't know, five, six years in between then and when it was going to reemerge, but didn't. We built, we thought it was a great company, uh, you know, building on what Dana said, we, 
We weren't afraid to go against the grain. We had a very clear strategy to move to the high barrier to entry markets. That was dilutive to our FFO. We got a lot of criticism for that, but ultimately built a, a really incredible portfolio that we determined was at, at the time wasn't being valued by the public markets and nearly where it would have been valued for, by the private markets. And it was also a time where there was the capital available in the private markets was substantial. And so we were able to do a $23 billion LBO essentially. And, and yeah, we were we sold the company at the top of the market in 2007. And, and that was a great transaction for our shareholders, created incredible value for them. You guys coming back together again. It's a wonderful story in business when people know each other and able to finish each other's sentences, which you guys have done throughout our conversation here. But that ease of working together is a competitive advantage. Talk about coming back together again and then how you've managed that. I think that there's something nice when you know that someone has your back, when you know how they think about the world, when you know that you can speak in shorthand and that most of the time people will understand it helps you move quickly. And so, you know, we've tried to balance this organization with people who we know and people who we trust and enough outside influence that it keeps us on our toes and and keeps us challenged. I think Chaz and I, it's funny, we started with literally cubes across each other for some period of time. And we've always had different roles, but at least from my standpoint, I've always appreciated the different perspective that Chaz comes at issues with. So I like to say that we're both looking forward towards the same goal and objective, but we bring different perspectives that hopefully gets us to a better outcome than if either one of us had had done that alone. I think Dana stated well we have, I'd say complementary skills in many ways, kind of in, in, but very much come at, at problems from a different perspective, but with the same goal in mind. And that's worked really well for us for, for a long time. And I think it will continue going forward. It's kind of like co-CEO roles, but from in different chairs, given that you're in different vehicles and maybe co-CEOs when it works, works because people know what their role is more or less. They overlaps 40% and then the other 60% each does on their own. And you probably have that kind of relationship. You have to, on the one hand, carve out enough space for the other person that they have room to to grow and control and decide and drive and everything else, and yet have that that willingness to share and be open and to, to live with the overlap. Yeah. Dana, I first met you at a Fisher Center. That's the UC Berkeley real estate graduate program event, and you very bravely from the back of the room or the front of the room said, hey, I'm a young woman in the business and navigating this very male-dominated business as a young woman's tough. And I immediately glommed on to you. We became friends. Talk about this in retrospect now, 20 years later, through what's been a really successful real estate career, but headwinds nonetheless. You know, the best advice I was given was given to me by a woman by the name of Michelle Toops early in my career, and I completely disregarded it. And she said, don't try to be superwoman. No one's going to give you credit for that. And it's a very interesting thing because as a always in my life, a nurturer wanting to take care of all of the things around me, it's been a struggle between doing things for which I think they need to be done and I think they're the right thing, but really they're not the things that you get that you get credit for. 
but that's being my authentic self and, and sort of how to, how to balance that with, with moving forward. And I think age is a real gift because you don't have to worry about these things anymore. I would be lying if I didn't say it was sometimes lonely. So I've had to make a special point to find other women in my life who are similarly situated, albeit in different organizations. But it does surprise me again with age how important women outside of the organization have been to me in, in those moments of need. Okay, the final question on leading voices is always your advice for a young person getting into the business. And Chaz, I'll start with you and then Dana. I always say find a role where you can learn as much as you can. Make sure that it's with a, a company or a group of people that you respect and that they're busy, they're doing things so that you, you have the opportunity to learn and, and be willing to, of course, work hard, but, but also roll up your sleeves, dig in and, and you know, really learn from the bottoms up. And don't worry so much about how much money you'll make early on. A lot of young people, I think, focus too much on finding a job with the highest salary. There are lots of ways to make money over time, and it's just you know more important to get into something that you can learn a lot. And also, while you're doing that, think about whether you will love it. Because ultimately, it's I think it's absolutely critical that you do something that you're passionate about. You'll be more successful. If you're excited about it, passionate about it, you'll be more committed. You'll put more energy into your work. You'll think harder about, you know, how you can do better if it's something that you're passionate about. And I, I think that's a, you know, really, really important thing to consider as you figure out what you're going to do for the rest of your life. Cool. 100%. Dana? I think who you work for matters, and that's the individual, probably more so even than the company. I think the second is go above and beyond, do your best work and then figure out how to make it better. And don't stop learning, ask questions. There are no stupid questions. If you don't know something, ask or go find it out. Hey, thank you both so much. It has been a great conversation. I've appreciated every bit of it. So thank you both very much. And I'm happy we're friends and colleagues and look forward to continuing talking. Great to catch up now. Thanks, Matt. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices. And I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.